On the 12th of December, 1933, the art historian Fritz Saxel was waiting in London for an urgent message from Hamburg. When the telegram finally came, it contained two welcome words. Hermia afloat. Hermia was a steamship. Together with its cousin Jessica, it was liberating a precious cargo from the increasingly hostile atmosphere of Nazi Germany. Six librarians and 60,000 books were making their way to London. They were a part of the Warburg Institute, which finally came to rest here in Woburn Square, and with it, an entire intellectual tradition. Rewind to 1926 in Hamburg, Germany. After decades of planning, the art historian and cultural theorist Abby Warburg has finally opened his extensive library as a research institute. Heir to a banking dynasty, as a young man he had rejected all his parents' plans and instead taken up the study of art history. He forfeited his inheritance in favour of his brother Max, on condition that Max buy him any book he wanted for the rest of his life. Later, Max observed that this had been tantamount to writing Abby a very large blank cheque. The Warburg Library was born. Warburg's studies were driven by his belief in the interconnectedness of all human endeavour, in particular the psychological and philosophical underpinnings of human expression through art, literature and action. The books in his library were, and still are, arranged according to this idiosyncratic view of human activity. The first floor covers image, where books relate the trajectories of particular symbols and images in the European art and architectural traditions. On the second floor, word is concerned with the persistence of motifs in languages and literature. On the uppermost floors, we find books relating to the gradual transition from magical to religious to scientific thought in Western culture, here called orientation, and finally action, the survival of ancient patterns in social, psychological and political customs. If this sounds a little difficult to navigate, in some ways that was the point. Warburg believed in a system based on the principle of good neighbourliness. The book you actually need is next to the one you think you want. Eccentric it may have been, but this approach was revolutionary for the study of art history. For Warburg, artworks were not merely pretty arrangements of paint and stone to be enjoyed aesthetically, but social documents tied inseparably to the psychological conditions of the cultures that produced them. Warburg died in 1929, but by that time his institute had gathered around it a loyal following of ambitious and brilliant scholars who were determined to make it a success. Over the next few years, however, a series of national and international disasters made its existence increasingly precarious. The Wall Street crash hit the Warburg banking dynasty hard, reducing income for new books to a trickle. But more disastrous still was the rise of the Nazi party, which took power in 1933. As Warburg himself had been, many of the scholars associated with the Institute were Jewish. Once Hitler was in power, many of them lost their posts at Hamburg University or were forced to emigrate. By May that year, students had all but stopped attending the Institute because so many of their supervisors had left. Fritz Saxel, now director, decided to look abroad for support, and after a series of complex negotiations, Max Warburg was formally invited to lend his late brother's library to London for a period of three years. The negotiations had been completed in secret, for fear of alerting the Nazi government too soon. Instead of a library move, the scholars referred to the project as a manuscript catalogue, 
and the Renaissance code names that were part and parcel of the Warburg's unique intellectual culture now helped their letters dodge the censors. But when the plans were finally revealed, the Hamburg government still needed to approve them. While some were content for the library to go, others hoped that the books could be redistributed and used in Nazi cultural centres. Finally, a compromise was reached, where 2,000 books relating to the First World War were to be presented as a gift to the state, and the rest could go. These volumes were only tangential to the Institute's interests and were offered up without hesitation. In return, the authorities agreed to ignore the move to London, provided no fanfare was given in the national or international press. The request to move had come just in time. Two weeks later, the hostile Reich authorities would take over all such decisions from the state government, resulting in certain refusal. But by then, the books were already being packed. The staunchly anti-Nazi helpers made record time, and on the 12th of December 1933, 531 boxes were moving steadily down the Elbe on the steamships Hermia and Jessica. The books were accompanied by Gertrude Bing, the formidable, kind, terrifying, generous librarian to whom the Institute would owe a large part of its success in London. The presence of this unique institution in Britain was to set the study of art and culture in this country on a new and brilliant course. Over the next decades, the loan of the Institute was extended and extended again, finally gaining association with the University of London. In 1957, it moved from Thames House on Millbank to its current home in Woburn Square, and by then, it was an integral part of the London intellectual scene. Many of the Warburg's first scholars and librarians were Jewish, but they saw their flight as one from intellectual, not religious, persecution. At one of the darkest times in humanity's history, six scholars smuggled a little light out of Germany and kindled it here in London, where it is still burning.